Our second reading is from the prophet Hosea, chapters 1 and 3. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, for will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. The word of the Lord. According to the Bible, the Christian God is a God who acts in history and through people's lives. He's a God who acts in history and through people's lives. In other words, God, the God of the Bible, is not the hands-off deism God of colonial days, where people like Locke and Hume and Ben Franklin thought God was like a clockmaker who put everything together and then let it go. But nor is God simply a lawmaker, giving directives of do this pilgrimage, pray this prayer, avoid this sin. God is more than just the sum of the laws, as some religions would put it. And finally, God is not simply a mystery, some sort of unknowable force out there. In Zen Buddhism, they have these things called Zen koans, which are basically like parables or phrases that in pondering them, you achieve enlightenment. So one particular Zen koan goes like this. A Zen master was being questioned by a student, and it was late at night, so the Zen master says, you look very tired. The student says, um, okay, well, the Zen master says, go to bed. I think you should go to bed now. And the student says, but it's dark in the hallway. And the Zen master tells him, well, here, take this candle. The student takes the candle. And the Zen master leans in and blows it out. You get it, right? Ponder that. As you ponder that, you might achieve enlightenment. It's God as an unknowable force that you must ponder in stories and parables that help you to perceive nothingness. See, the God of the Bible acts in human history. It's why we go back to the Bible, because the Bible is a story about God's people and how he has acted in history. And he acts through individuals. 
We go back to it again and again. We talk about actually this grand narrative that traces through the whole Bible. And it is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It's the story of Genesis to Revelation. It's also the story of human history. It's the way things are going. Creation, fall, redemption, and ultimately one day the final restoration of all things. Amazingly, this is also the way that the narratives play out again and again in the Bible. They are stories when you take an individual narrative of creation and fall and redemption and the promise of restoration. This morning, we're going to look a little bit deeper because we're starting in on a series looking at minor prophets. In order to understand what God is saying through them, we need to understand where they fit in the whole biblical narrative. So a step below creation, fall, redemption, restoration is things like Abraham. In Abraham, we get God coming first to the people through Abraham saying, Abraham, I am calling you to be the one through whom I'm going to bless all people. God makes promises to Abraham and his offspring and establishes a covenant with them to be their God, to walk with them. And of course, in time, God shows up again in the story of the Exodus. In the story of the Exodus, the people of Israel have been enslaved for hundreds of years. God sends a redeemer to pull them out of that slavery in Moses. And Moses comes and brings judgment, the judgment of God on Egypt. And ultimately, the people of Israel are brought out of Egypt. And in that process, he establishes himself as their God and they his people. And he gives them the law, the commandments, the covenant. And this is the nature of their relationship. Eventually, they then step into the time of the kings, when Israel conquers the land, the land of promise that God has given them. And kings like Saul and then David come in and establish a monarchy, a time of peace and prosperity as the people of God seek after him and he is with them. But no sooner do they establish a kingdom than they start falling away again and again from David down to Solomon's sins, down to the next kings and king after king and the people then push further and further away from the Lord. And it's in the midst of these kings falling further and further away that the prophets come. The major prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and the minor prophets like the ones we're looking at today, they come and they begin to speak God's truth. See, we often think about prophecy or prophets as future telling, but actually the best way to understand the prophets in the Bible is that they were like lawyers prosecuting the people of Israel. Pretty much everything the prophets say is reverting back to the covenants that God has established. And he's saying, you have failed to obey my covenant. You have broken the relationship. The prophets are covenant lawsuit prosecutors. They're bringing prosecution against the nation. And it's generally a calling to repent, a warning of judgment. And even inside of that, there's almost always a promise of one day restoration. And after the prophets, if we kept going, it's pointing towards Christ, the day when things finally are redeemed, and the church, and the day ultimately after that when restoration and God's kingdom will be established in full. But today we're sitting in the prophets. And this is, I'm just giving this big cursory history because we are people in the modern world who lack biblical literacy. We really do. And a big way to understand the Bible and to have biblical literacy is to know how to read any portion of the Bible. To do that, we need to see where it fits in God's plan of redemption, the course of history as it's playing out. Because the course of the Bible's history 
is our history. It is our story. According to Paul in Galatians, any one of us who believes in Jesus Christ, who believes in this God, is a son or daughter of Abraham. And so this story becomes our story. And this is also how we know God. God is not some unknowable force. God is not known simply through the commandments. God is known as he acts in history and through lives. And so as we enter into looking at the prophets over the next few weeks, we're looking at God acting in history and speaking through his prophets to the people at a particular time. The series that we're starting in on is called Loving the Unlovable, because that's what God does. Again and again, he extends his love to the unlovable. We're going to be looking at Hosea and how Hosea is preaching to religious infidelity and God's love for the unfaithful and adulterous people. We'll be looking at Amos and God's love of the poor and the marginalized as he proclaims prophecy against the injustice of Israel. And finally, we're going to look at Jonah, the story that many of you guys know about how God sends his prophet to the pagan Ninevites because God loves the nations and the Gentiles. As we look at this, we're asking a simple and basic question. What was happening back then? What was God saying to the people? And as we look at that, what do we learn about God? What is he like? What does it teach us about humanity and God's plan of salvation? And then finally, we get to the question of what does it mean to us? And that's really what we're going to be doing each week. So we enter into Hosea, and Hosea is set up by verse 2 of chapter 1, when God calls Hosea to something completely unusual. It says, The Lord said to Hosea, Go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Yeah, see, the Bible is not G-rated. It's not explicit, but it's definitely stepping into the TV-14 range. And what it's pointing at is that God calls Hosea, a prophet, to do something in his life that would have been against the law. It was immoral for him to do. But God was using his life in order to proclaim his truth to the nation. So what Hosea does is he marries a woman named Gomer. Now, Gomer was, by, by most commentators' accounts, a prostitute. Now, we have to understand that in that ancient world setting. So the word that's used here, whoredom, could also be translated prostitute, and it's not simply promiscuous like the hookup culture of today, nor should we understand prostitute in the way of a streetwalker or somebody who's in a brothel like we would think of today. Rather, it was a woman who found her security, her protection and provision in the hands of a man she was not married to. And so she was paid for giving her body to him, and that was her provision. Gomer has a history of using men as a source of love and security. And what she was doing was immoral. She would have been an outcast from her family and from the entire community. Everyone in the city or village would have shunned her. And think about how that's Hosea's call. Go and marry that woman. I want you to provide, protect, and love a known adulterer. You can imagine Hosea saying, how about if I just say Israel is unfaithful? Can't I just go around proclaiming, Israel, you are like an adulterer. You are unfaithful. I'll go write a book. I'll write a song. I'll sing the song. 
There's lots of good songs about unfaithfulness. I'll sing how Israel is unfaithful, but God says, I want you to go and marry an unfaithful woman. This is incredibly costly for Hosea. By doing this, he has to bear the shame of the entire community. He steps into her shame by doing something shameful. If he had any status in the village, he would have lost it completely. And he's called to love somebody who he cannot trust will love him back. To love somebody who will not be faithful to him. This is what we've talked about before. It's called an enacted prophecy. It's your life as a sermon. Isaiah, I've mentioned this before, was told at one point to walk around naked for three years as a way to tell the people of Israel that you too will be shamed and stripped naked and will go off into exile in humiliation. Jesus goes to the temple and overturns the money changers. It was an acted prophecy to declare judgment on the whole temple system. Hosea is called to go and marry a prostitute. And it was God's way of declaring his judgment on Israel for their unfaithfulness. It's not just his marriage, it extends to his children. We didn't read it, but Hosea with uh, Gomer has three children, although some of them might have been because of her prostitution. One was named Jezreel. Jezreel was a city that was known infamously in that day and age. It would be like calling your daughter or son Watergate. Everyone would know, ooh, that's not a name you want to name your child. It's an accusation against the nation, calling one child Jezreel. The other two children were named no mercy, and not my people. His children's names carried the shame and accusations of God upon the nation. The New Living Translation, which is a more paraphrase of verse 2, puts it all more clearly. It helps to summarize it. This is what God calls him to do. Go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So the hard calling of Hosea is to go and marry a prostitute so that his life is declaring condemnation on Israel for spiritual infidelity. His own life and marriage is a warning of coming judgment. But on the flip side of it, it's also a revelation of God's mercy. God loves the unfaithful. God loves the unlovable. As Hosea is called to love this unfaithful woman, God says, I will love you even in your unfaithfulness. And we see both of those in Hosea's life and in his message. But the message of Hosea is primarily a harsh message. It is one where he brings accusations against Israel. We see these clearly when he starts preaching. In chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 12, there's two accusations. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. A lack of knowledge of God is a primary accusation. And the second goes along with it. My people inquire of a piece of wood. This is idolatry, going after other gods. They have left their God to play the whore. This is the actual accusation against the nation. For centuries at this point, decades for sure, but probably centuries, they had been pursuing other gods besides Yahweh, the Lord God. 
It's hard for us to get our heads around worshiping a, a wooden idol, an actual statue, but we have to understand some of the appeal of idolatry in that ancient world. First, on one level, the appeal of idolatry was assurance. It was a way of covering your bases. Yes, we're going to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, but we should also probably go and worship the God of fertility and of rain and of defense and safety and war. You know, cover our bases. One friend mentioned how in India they saw a friend of theirs who was a Hindu stopping into temples along the way. Whether it was a Christian church or a temple for Vishnu, you go and pray and offer a sacrifice or a gift because you want to cover all your bases. You don't want to offend any of the gods. And in some senses, this is why Israel goes and, ex and connects with the gods of the peoples around them. It's covering their bases, assurance. But a primary reason why Israel goes and starts serving other gods is for security. You see, gods were identified with particular nations. And so Israel began to establish covenantal relationships with other nations. And when they did that, they also entered into religious covenant with the other nation. When you entered into a legal peace agreement, most often you would do so by worshiping their gods and promising to worship their god. Israel was going to other nations to seek their protection and provision, and therefore they were committing to the gods of those nations. The problem is this, Israel's calling was to draw all the peoples of the world to see and to understand and worship Yahweh God. But instead, Israel goes out, connects to and depends on the other nations and begins to worship their gods. Rather than drawing people to worship the God, they extend themselves to seek after all the other gods. And finally, it made sense. They went for assurance and security, and it made sense. It was a very reasonable thing to do. Every culture in that day and age had a God that you could actually see, a statue that you could go up and touch, except for the Israelites, whose God was unseen. They wanted to be like everyone else. But God gives a warning for this idolatry. It's a warning of judgments to come. In chapter 2, it's this long diatribe of judgments that are to come. And we can see some of the words that he uses. I'm going to strip, kill. There'll be no mercy. I will uncover you, lay you to waste. There will be punishment. God warns them, spiritual infidelity will lead to me pulling back and abandoning you. And when I pull back and abandon you, everything falls apart. You'll be handed over to the nations. You will go into exile. You will no longer be a nation or a people. If you turn from me, I will let you go your way, and the result will be devastating. And right here is where I'm going to pause and say, here's a place where I think we can step in and look at what God might be speaking to us. And it's on a topic that we've talked about here before, idolatry. Israel serves the idols and gods of the nations, just like Gomer seeks her security in the men around her. And each of us is drawn to serve other gods too. It may not be a wooden statue, but it's whatever deeply motivates us. What is the deepest motivations of our heart? 
There's a direct tie between the motivations of our heart and the gods that we actually are serving day in and day out. David Pallison, a therapist and writer, had an article in 1991 called Idols of the Heart in which he talked about how our behaviors are driven by internal motivations that really are driven by our deepest fears and longings. He writes this, behavior is motivated from the inside by complex life-driving patterns of thoughts, desires, fears, views of the world and the like, of which a person may be almost wholly unaware. For example, what's behind my avoidance of intimacy or my aggressiveness with others? Well, I think to myself, you might hurt me, so I better keep my distance, or I need to attack you first. You see, my behavior is a strategy which expresses my motives, what I really trust, my deepest wants, my greatest fears, and my perceived felt needs. Let me simplify this. As an example, I may love my family deeply, and I might be driven, my primary motivation might be to provide and protect my wife and my kids. Now, on the surface, this is a good motivation. It's very culturally acceptable to provide and protect your wife and your kids, especially here in a place like Vienna where family is so important. But my love of family can compete with God. And when it does, it begins to drive my behavior, which can become more and more extreme and volatile. As an example, if my kids or my spouse are at the center of my heart, then my behavior is going to be driven by fears, dreams, or perceived needs for my family. My kid must succeed in sports. I fear what happens if I can't provide for my family. And so instead of just being frugal and wise with my finances, I'll be incredibly anxious over finances and probably controlling of all the purchases done in my family. Or, instead of just wanting my kids to be happy, it will become the only thing I live for, and I will be vicious if I think or perceive that anybody is getting in the way of my kids' happiness. Whether that is a teacher, or a coach, or another kid, I'll kill them. And likewise, if I'm supposed to provide and protect, and that's my only motivation, what I'm going to find is that I will feel like an absolute failure to my spouse if I lose my job, and I will be suicidal. When family, when my wife and my kids are providing and protecting for them, becomes the only thing, my behavior is driven to extremes. But the biblical perspective reveals a couple of things that push this away. One, I have no real control. I can't control my kids' choices, ultimately. I can't control the economy. I can't protect my kids enough from tragedy. I can't really provide and protect for my family perfectly. None of us even knows when we're going to die. Yeah, that's really true. We don't. So we can't ultimately protect and provide everything. I don't really have the control I think I do. And secondly, God does. God does and God loves them more than I do. God will provide what they really need. Even if they go through hard times, God will provide what my kids and my wife really need eternally. 
Trusting in God is also the only place to find peace, to not be driven mad by my anxieties or fears or needs. If I truly, if I truly love my wife and kids, I will entrust them to God, which means holding them open-handedly. Yes, I'm going to provide as best I can. I'm going to try to protect, but it's not mine to hold on to and control at every step. David Pallison, writing in that same article, suggests that these deep motivations of our heart, the idols of our heart, really point to gods, other gods that we seek and worship. He writes, the deep question of motivation is not what is motivating me. The final question is who? Who is the master of this pattern of thought, feeling, or behavior? In the biblical view, we are religious, inevitably bound to one God or another. People do not have needs. We have masters, lords, gods, be they oneself, other people, valued objects, or Satan. Bringing this back to our passage, it's saying all of us have tendencies towards spiritual infidelity. None of us is different than Israel in that ancient world or Gomer in relation to Hosea. And so it's a question we ask ourselves, what or rather who do you turn to for security, for love and assurance? The Bible seems to suggest that like Gomer, like Israel, all of us are guilty or have tendencies towards it. But the good news of the Bible is that while God is a God of justice, he is also a God of mercy. It is both and. And we hear this justice and then mercy in Hosea 3. When God calls Hosea a second time, and we read this in Hosea 3, 1 and 2. And the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. So I, Hosea, bought her for 15 shekels of silver and for some barley. The commentators somewhat disagree about this, but the traditional view that several commentators point to is that two different times Hosea goes after Gomer. The first time is when he goes and seeks a prostitute and marries her. In order to do that, he would have to buy her freedom from whatever man she was associated with at that time and then marry her on a totally different way of relating to her that she had ever been related to. But then apparently Gomer leaves Hosea. She goes back to the men or other men in order to find security, gifts, other pleasure. And Hosea is called, your wife was unfaithful. She commits adultery, and I want you to go and find her and love her again. I want you to go and find your unfaithful wife and I want you to buy her back from the man she is with right now. This is his wife. And he has to go and pay for her like he's paying for her services to bring her back into his house to show his extensive love for her. Hosea's right is to divorce her or even have her condemned and executed. But God calls Hosea to love an unfaithful wife, to use his own money to pay for her and redeem her and set her free. 
kind of sounds like some other story we know about. It's pointing to Jesus. What God does through Hosea to Gomer is what God does to and for all of us in Jesus Christ. Hosea's life is foreshadowing the cross. Jesus gives himself as the payment, as the ransom payment for our redemption. Even though we are unfaithful. In Romans 5:8, Paul says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us in this while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The message of the gospel is that Jesus is our true loving spouse. He loves us though we are unfaithful. You know, in Ephesians 5, Paul is talking about marriage and he's giving instructions for men and for women, for husbands and wives. But then he, he kind of boils it up into this exaltation of what Christ has done for us. And basically what he says is marriage is a reflection of Christ's love for us, the church, his spouse. Christ gave himself for us. He cleanses us and forgives us of our sin and he makes us beautiful even though we are not And the picture is this, that if you are single and really want to be married, or you are married and love your spouse desperately and devotedly, recognize this, no spouse can save you. No husband or wife can give you what Christ can give you. No perfect marriage can match God's perfect love for us. It's not meant to bear that weight and it never will satisfy the way God does and can. Marriage is always, even at its best, meant to point to Christ's love for us. At its best, it's a reflection, a pale reflection of the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ crucified for us. Hosea gives warnings against infidelity but then he gives us the words of mercy, the promise of God's love for us in Hosea's life and in Hosea's words. In chapter two, which I had us look at a couple of key words, God warns against judgment and abandonment of Israel if they disobey. But then at the end of chapter two, he gives words of promise, trying to woo Israel back. And look at some of these words. He says, I will speak tenderly to her. I will give to her. I will make a covenant with them. I will betroth you. You shall know me, and I will have mercy on you. The Lord wants us and the people to return to him. He makes this promise pretty explicit in verses 19 and 20, where he makes this promise to the people of Israel. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Though you are unfaithful, Israel, I am committed to you. I love you. I will go after you and again and again and again because I want you to know me. That word know is the Hebrew word yada. It's very prominent in the book of Hosea. It's a word which means to know intimately, experientially, and personally, not just head knowledge. It's, of course, the word that can be translated in the Old Testament as sexual relations. To know, to really know. 
Knowing is the problem in Hosea. Israel does not know and trust God. But it's also the solution. Know God. You can know God. Come to me and you will know me. You will experience my love for you. God is a holy and righteous judge. But he is also a merciful, loving savior. He is the spouse we need. And so we are called to respond. Hosea is calling the people and us to respond. He warns against spiritual infidelity and asks us to ask ourselves, who do we seek for love and security? Who is our master and Lord besides God? And then he calls us in a wooing, alluring plea. Though you are unfaithful, I love you and will redeem you and will stay with you. And Hosea gives us a great prayer, a great prayer that's also a call to the people. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, he says, Come, come Israel, let us return to the Lord. For though he has torn us, he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, on the third day he will raise us up. Easter maybe? That we may live before him. So let us know, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. He is certain and sure as the dawn, and he will come and give us what we need like the spring rains watering the earth. Each and every day we return to, to know the Lord. That's our call. Go back to the God who loves us. He is the faithful spouse, though we are unfaithful, and he loves and forgives us again and again and again. Let us pray. Give us hearts and minds to see your love for us, that though we are unfaithful, you extend your love. And so let us repent and return to you, O Lord, so that we can know you, so we can experience you, so we can walk in your presence. And know the Lord who is faithful and good, in whose name we pray. Amen. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not the compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Thank you.